Matthew 18. I heard a story recently about a 17-year-old boy. I heard a story about a 17-year-old boy living in St. Louis, Missouri. And like many teenage boys, his room was a disaster. I'm looking at you, Jacob. <laughs> like many teenage boys, their room is a disaster. And I was just playing around. I don't know what your room looks like. Uh, there's laundry strewn all over the ground. And, and in those piles of laundry, there was clean laundry and dirty laundry mixed together. And this young guy would get up, getting ready for school. And running short on time, so he just reached into the pile of his laundry and he pulled out a pair of socks and he put his socks on. But then he took a couple steps and you ever get that feeling, you put your sock on, you feel like maybe there's like a little pebble in there or something and it kind of gives you some discomfort. He kind of felt that and just kind of shook his foot a little bit and feels like he kind of fixed it and he just went on with his day, continued on going to school. However, as the day went on, that discomfort in his foot got worse and worse. To the point where at the end of the day when he got home, he sat on the edge of his bed and he took his sock off and his foot was red and swollen, bruising on it. What was this? Well, he didn't think much of it and thought it might just pass. But then as time went on, he began to develop back pain. His heart began to beat irregularly until the point where he went to the restroom and he had blood in his urine. At that point, he understood this was something very serious, something that he had let go too far, and he called an ambulance, and they took him to the emergency room. There they ran tests, and they found that, yes, this was something that was spreading through his system and affecting his heart, and his kidneys were actually shutting down. When the doctors asked this young man what had happened, he let them know a detail that I haven't shared with you yet, and that is when he got home from school, and he sat on the edge of his bed, and he took his sock off and saw his foot swelling, he turned his sock inside out, and on the inside of it, he found an unwelcomed intruder. It was a dead brown recluse spider that was in his sock all day. He got bitten by that spider, and he waited for days after the bite to do anything about it, and he went about life just as normal without seeking any treatment, and then things got worse and worse and worse until he found himself in the emergency room. Irregular heartbeat and kidneys shutting down. The sad thing about that situation, lots of sad things about that, but one of the sad things about it is he could have prevented that very easily because uh, spider venom, this particular spider, is sensitive to uh, temperature. And so he could have had a cold compress on his leg and it would have stopped that venom uh, from spreading through his system had he dealt with it promptly. Thankfully, because of the the care of the doctors and understanding exactly what had happened to him, he was able to make a full restoration. Well, hopefully you can make a connection to that in a minute. (laughs) Well, the past few weeks we've been talking about the topic of forgiveness. We focused on the fact that forgiveness and resentment and bitterness and such attitudes like these are unwelcome. They are unwelcome intruders. They are destructive in the life of a Christian and in the church at large. We saw that Jesus Christ modeled for us a prayer, and in that prayer, giving guidance to his followers and how they ought to pray, he included the necessity of forgiveness. Not only this, but the prayer he gave us was a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It's to be prayed every day, or at least a framework for a daily prayer, and included in that is forgive us as we've forgiven others. And so we must seek forgiveness 
and give forgiveness daily. In other words, it must be dealt with every day. That's why I say that unforgiveness is an unwelcomed intruder. It means there's something wrong that needs to be fixed, something that cannot be ignored. Something in our heart, that unforgiveness, that if not dealt with, it's going to uh, eventually create all sorts of other consequences. When unforgiveness surfaces in the heart of a believer, it ought to feel like a stone in the shoe. It ought to feel like a sting in the side of the foot that needs to be explored, that needs to be dealt with. Instead of turning a sock inside out to find the unwelcome intruder, we ought to be doing the daily work of exploring our own heart to see where this problem's coming from. Unforgiveness in the church is not a discomfort that should be tolerated, dealt with immediately. Otherwise, it does escalate. And there is a relatively easy way, hard for us as sinners, but relatively easy way to deal with this properly, uh, which is simply to seek and to offer forgiveness, to keep short accounts with people. So we ought to ensure that our relationships are always harmonious and, when broken, quickly restored. So God would have us deal with unforgiveness in our hearts. Not just because it's going to escalate into worse attitudes, as we saw last week, and more broken relationships, but because unforgiveness exposes a host of other unhelpful attitudes. Kind of the tip of the iceberg. If you know the individual who harbors bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, again, that exposes the fact that they have some wrong-headed thinking about God and what God has done. So we've seen this over the past few weeks, that unforgiveness exposes in the heart of an individual a lack of faith. A lack of faith that God is who he claims to be, that he is the just judge. He will vindicate. It's a lack of faith that God is sovereign, that he actually orchestrates situations, and that he's in control. Remember the story of Joseph. It also exposes a lack of faith in the fact that Jesus, or that uh, God is our loving father. And that all things that he brings about in our life is for our good. It exposes a lack of thankfulness for what God has done. Unforgiveness exposes the reality that we are entirely unworthy of the forgiveness that we have received by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus made a personal sacrifice as the only worthy one. Yet we as sinners refuse to pay the personal price of forgiving others. There's a lack of a sense of indebtedness. There's a lack of thankfulness that's exposed when we fail to forgive others. It also exposes a lack of obedience to what God has commanded. He just explicitly tells us to love our brothers. He tells us to love our enemies. He tells us to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so we may think ourselves to be generally obedient to our Heavenly Father, but many of us, and this includes all of us, many of us have found ways to compartmentalize. Oh, I'm obedient to the Father, but I have this dark room, (laughs) the key to which I will not allow the Holy Spirit. And in there, I keep all of my resentment and bitterness. We say, no, that needs to be, that door needs to be opened. The light needs to shine in. So persistent unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment represent the symptoms of a greater spiritual problem. And that's why God has designed our faith in such a way that unforgiveness is unacceptable. That's why it must be dealt with as soon as it surfaces. That's why we must deal with it daily. Further, as we saw, God has made our forgiveness of other people a requirement if we are to offer acceptable worship. Remember Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said, you're there offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you. Go and reconcile with your brother. Then come back and worship. And so God says, I don't want to receive worship from an unforgiving heart. 
Acceptable worship is worship which flows from a forgiving heart, and God accepts no other kind. Now, since we've learned that unforgiveness is so destructive to our own spiritual life, to our relationship with others, it won't be surprising to you this morning as we look at Matthew 18 to see that God forbids that type of attitude within the community of the church. It makes sense that God would be intolerant of unforgiveness in the church when we consider just what a church is. And this is going to be our working definition of church. And this is the definition you'll see in Membership Matters. A church is a group of baptized believers who regularly gather in organized assemblies with a commitment to live out their discipleship together in the context of loving relationships, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and prayer and the practice of the ordinances over the site, over, under the oversight of appointed leadership. That's our working definition for the church. Now, if that's our working definition for what a church is, you can understand how unforgiveness is an unwelcome intruder. If the church is a group of people, baptized believers, who regularly gather together in organized assemblies with a commitment to live out their discipleship in the context of loving relationships, then you understand how unforgiveness destroys that definition because it kills loving relationships. Church life is corporate life. Church life is community life. Church life consists of relationships. And the loving unity of these relationships is meant to show the world that we are indeed Christ's disciples. Now, we saw in our membership class this morning, uh, John 13, 34, and 35, which I said in the class is just absolutely fundamental to church life. I mean, memorize it, right? Memorize it. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And just now, now think about verse 34. Remember, we've already seen that we forgive others as he has forgiven us. Here it says that we love others as he's loved us. And we say, well, how has he loved us? Well, he loved us by giving himself for us sacrificially while we were yet sinners. And so we love others just as he loved us. Now look what Jesus says in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is incredible. He's saying it's the love that exists between these people right here, this community of believers. If we are a church, it's the love between us that the culture looks at and says, what is that? I have to understand this. This love is so foreign to the culture that it needs explanation so that we can say, oh, the love that you see between us, that you're having a hard time understanding how we can love one another with all of our foibles, with all of our failures, the fact that we can forgive over and over and over and over again. How can you do this? We say, I can only do this because this is the love that Jesus has shown me. We love each other the way Jesus loved us. The culture sees that and says, well, what is that? Well, they must be followers of Jesus. That ought to be. How sad, how far we've come. Culture seems to no longer look at the church as evidence of the supernatural spiritual unity that Jesus has wrought in their hearts. Instead, what? The church doesn't even want to be known by those things anymore. The church wants to be known for its political activism. The church wants to be known for winning culture wars. Uh, The church wants to know for its stand on moral issues, which are not all wrong. But Jesus set the standard and said, the culture will know you by the love that you have for one another. If that's the standard that Jesus sets, then we understand how unforgiveness goes right to the heart of that. Now, you might hear this and say, okay, well, that, we might all agree, okay, well, that seems right, but isn't that kind of like quaint idealism? 
I mean, is that really, sure, we all agree that's a standard, but does anybody ever really hit that standard? Something good to strive for, but really probably never going to happen. Good on paper, probably not achieved in reality. What we're going to learn from Matthew 18 this morning, and in the coming weeks, is that not only is a culture of loving, vulnerable, forgiving relationships achievable in the church, it is a matter of obedience. And when it doesn't exist, or when there exists something to threaten that, Jesus actually gives to the church authority and responsibility to root out those unforgiving attitudes. It's going to be remarkable, and it's going to stretch us somewhat as we consider Matthew 18. Jesus has actually given the congregation, the church, a mandate to actually take action if a church member refuses to forgive, refuses to apologize, refuses to extend forgiveness, otherwise it refuses to reconcile. So this morning, let's read it, Matthew 18, 15 through 22. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Jesus only mentions the church twice. In his earthly ministry. This is the second occurrence. The first occurrence is in Matthew 16, which we will see in the coming weeks. In that passage, Jesus actually promised to give the church the authority to do what is contained in this passage. So in Matthew 16, Jesus actually uh, promises the authority to do what he is illustrating in Matthew 18. Jesus actually promised to give the church authority and responsibility. And so here we have, in this context, what? We have two believers. One sinned against the other. In some way now, this relationship is broken. Have you experienced this? Have you, have you experienced this in church? Some conflict between you and another believer. Now this relationship in some way is broken and in need of reconciliation. And as we recognize in Matthew 18, Jesus is saying this is unacceptable. This has to be dealt with promptly. First, Jesus tells the person who's been sinned against that he needs to go and approach his brother. Isn't that interesting? Generally, the way that we operate when we are offended is we sit and say, uh, well, they need to come and, and ask for my forgiveness. Hopefully, they come groveling back to me because they've gotten the point from the cold shoulder that I've been giving them that there's something wrong, and so they need to seek me out and... uh, Ask forgiveness. But what Jesus says here, first and foremost, is the person who's been offended is to go and talk to his brother. Why must he approach his brother? Why don't we just just leave it alone? I've been offended by somebody. Okay, they've hurt me. Just let it go. Well, there are times to let it go, as we're going to see. But what Jesus understands is the inherent weakness of man. He understands that if we've been offended by somebody else and we don't seek reconciliation, we're going to stew in that. 
It's going to fester until it bursts forth into resentment and bitterness and lasting unforgiveness. It has to be dealt with because of the nature of our hearts. Further, when someone is in this condition, they'll likely try to recruit others. Have you done this? Somebody's offended you, and so you go and you tell others. Uh, Maybe you do it under the guise of, I need counsel or I need prayer. But you share the offense that somebody else has committed against you, and really all you're trying to do is to gain uh, affirmation for your attitude against them. And, of course, you go to your friends, and so your friends affirm you, and now you're recruiting people on your side, basically. Jesus' instructions here prevent any, any such action. Jesus understands that if we go about recruiting others, take our side, poison their opinion against the person who's offended us, this is going to snowball so that there's going to be a greater offense caused by us than maybe even the initial offense. So Jesus says, you've been offended in the church? Go approach your brother. Go approach your sister. So, assuming an apology hasn't been given and the relationship remains broken, the offended person goes and seeks out the brother and sister to see if things can be made right. At that point... You've been offended. You go to your sinning brother or sister who's offended you. At that point, now the onus is on them. The onus is on them to hear you out. They now have a responsibility to ask for forgiveness and to fix that relationship. And notice in verse 15 of our passage that Jesus tells his church member to go and tell him his fault. What does he say? Between you and him alone. At this point, you've been offended by a, by a brother or sister in the church. This is entirely private. Entirely private. First and go, what? Approach your brother in confidence. Approach your brother in confidence. That's point one. It means privately. Secretly, even. Oftentimes, when we're offended, our first reaction is pride, obviously. We immediately seek to justify ourselves and to condemn those who have offended us. Again, we look for others who can offer a sympathetic ear and who can affirm us in our offense so that we can convince ourselves that we are in the right. What Jesus is saying here is this is meant to short-circuit that whole process that our flesh wants to lead us to. Just deal with it internally in your heart. Approach your brother privately. Far from bitterness or a drive for payback, the proper Christian response to a situation is try to reconcile privately. Now listen, so that the brother or sister who has harmed us doesn't have their reputation harmed or their sin to be needlessly exposed. So even when we're offended by a brother and sister in Christ, because this is in the context of loving, committed relationships within the church, even when I've been offended, I care for that person's spiritual life. I care for their reputation. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's not saying this is not a cover-up in the sense that we're hiding things from people who ought to know. The idea here is that we recognize that if an offense is just between me and the other person, we're the only only ones who need to know. To involve others needlessly at this point is, is either for the purpose of seeking validation in our bitterness or an attempt to hurt the reputation of the person who has offended us. It's lashing out. Love covers a multitude of sins. It said, even when I'm offended, I want to protect you. Even when I'm offended, I recognize that you're a sinner, but you're also a sufferer. In this situation, you've allowed sin to get the upper hand. Maybe there's some weakness in your life that's made you susceptible to it at this point in your life. And I need to be sensitive to that. And I want to protect your spiritual life. And so I keep it between just us. It's private. 
If we're operating from the starting point of love for others, our initial reaction will not be vindictiveness, it'll be love. We'll not gossip. We don't tear down the reputation of the sinning brother or sister. We will not share that needlessly with others. We just try to be reconciled. Now, a little note here. It's unfortunate that I have to give this note, but a little note. We're talking about private. Keep it in confidence. Don't tell anybody. We're talking about offenses in in personal relationships. We're not talking about a situation where somebody's being abused, okay? That's not what we're talking about. If you're in a situation where you're a vulnerable person suffering abuse at the hand of someone else, go tell whoever you need to tell, right? Uh, So let's just make that distinction. In this passage, we're talking about offenses within personal relationships in the church, not an abusive situation. So now consider the benefits of you having been offended. You go and you approach somebody else privately. Consider the benefits of this. If it turns out that maybe you are offended and it's just a misunderstanding, well, then you get to clear that up. Relationship is restored. Nobody else is involved. Water under the bridge. Move on with life. Also, if the sinning brother readily admits his fault, asks forgiveness, you're reconciled, then you've ensured that others don't have a poisoned opinion against this person so that even after you are reconciled to them, they don't have lingering animosity or a jaded view of this person with whom you have now reconciled. Also, by refusing to share the offense with others, you've protected yourself from reacting emotionally and from slandering your brother through gossip. You prevented yourself from sinning by simply keeping it private. So even when we are offended, our reaction to fellow believers must be driven by love. Seek their well-being, seek their reconciliation, or their restoration. Protect their reputation. Be reconciled to them quickly. Any other motivation in approaching our brother is unscriptural and harmful. And so, what does Jesus say? This is done with a sincere desire to what? Gain our brother. Gain our brother. That's the motivating desire. So, is there a fellow believer, brother or sister in Christ right now, with whom you need reconciliation. There's some relationship right now that's broken. It's not what it once was. And you've tried to convince yourself, well, it's okay. We don't need to be best friends. (laughs) But it's broken. When you think about that person, these are not happy, encouraging, wonderful thoughts that come to mind about that person. Your relationship's grown cold. Perhaps bitterness and resentment are just there on the fringes, you know, lingering. If you're the one who's caused the offense go and make it right. If you're the one who's offended, go and seek out that person to make it right. And if both of you respond obediently, you're going to meet each other halfway. So here's the question. You've been offended by your brother. Should we always go and apply Matthew 18 and approach our brother or sister every time we're offended? We would have a busy life, wouldn't we? I'm going to say no. There are times where we don't have to approach our brother. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for suing one another. They're actually going to secular court over offenses. And Paul says to them, wouldn't you rather, just, you would have been better off just to be defrauded. You would have been better off just to absorb the hurt. Just deal with it. Say, okay, take it one for the team. <laughs> uh, they've offended me, but you know what? I can forgive them for it unilaterally and move on with life. Also, in light of God's sovereignty and justice, maybe you say, well, you know what? That was absolutely wrong what they did, but, but you know what? God can take care of that. Here's the question, and this is how you know whether or not you should approach your brother or sister. 
Do you feel that your relationship has been broken? If you were not to deal with this situation by approaching your brother or sister, is your relationship going to be less than what it once was? Is there lingering animosity or bitterness? Is, is, has your relationship grown cold? If that's the case, then go. Fix it. If you can be the big spiritual person who just absorbs that and takes it and still goes on loving, take the hurt, keep on loving, okay. Well, then you don't necessarily have to approach over every offense. But again, again, all that assumes that we can just keep on loving the brother and that our relationship can continue in a loving way. It assumes that we're not going to allow that past offense to get in the way of our relationship. Otherwise, we must approach our brother and seek a healed relationship. Now, being sensitive to God's uh, intolerance of sin and broken relationships among believers and recognizing that your brother and sister in Christ, uh, that those relationships require reconciliation. And having approached your brother privately, how do you expect that conversation to go? You've approached that brother privately. You recognize the need for reconciliation. What does that conversation look like? I mean, let's just be practical about this. Maybe it looks like something like, hey, I'm not sure if you're feeling the same way I am, but I feel like our, our friendship, our relationship, it's not, it's not like it was. It's, it's grown cold. I feel like there's something between us. I feel like there's something that needs to be fixed. Have I offended you in some way? That's pretty simple, isn't it? Or maybe from the other perspective, I want to talk to you about something that I did. Forgive me. Without any justification, without any downplaying anything, I think that I hurt you. I think it's harmed our relationship. Maybe uh, it's resulted in bad feelings between us. Can we talk about it? Can we reconcile? Can we think this through together? Can we pray about it? Maybe it's just going to somebody and saying, hey, I'm sorry. In all things, it's simply seeking reconciliation. We're quick to note that humility is required by both parties. So you've been offended. It requires humility for you to go to that person and say, hey, I've been offended. Because in humility, you're saying to this person, you have the power to hurt me. You have the power to offend me. And that takes humility. On the other hand, it takes humility because nobody likes to be corrected. I put out a, an appeal recently, having finished writing our membership curriculum, and I said, hey, I need some people to proofread this. I need you to look over it because I make mistakes all the time, and you know, oftentimes you're writing something. You, you begin to read what you meant to say and not what is actually written, so that you constantly go over, the, miss the mistakes. And so I put an appeal out there for some people to send me corrections. And then I started getting the corrections, and I didn't like it. (laughs) And I had to say, oh, no, wait, this is good. This is good. (laughs) Correction is good here. Uh, We don't like to be corrected, do we? It takes humility for us to receive the confrontation from somebody else. And even if they come and they're trying to do it with the most tender spirit, we don't like correction. It takes humility on the person's part to come and approach. It takes humility to receive that. Uh, And how important then is Christ-like, spirit-filled character in this whole situation? However, think about this. Your relationship, a little bit cold right now. There's something between you and a brother or sister. You You do this hard work, this humble work of going and approaching somebody. You work through it. What is that relationship like now? now afterwards? Is it stronger or is it weaker? I think it's stronger. Now you've worked through that together. 
You've shown that the bonds of friendship and commitment that you have with one another are so strong that you're willing to do that hard relational work. Your relationship is so important that you want reconciliation, even if it means humility and vulnerability, even maybe embarrassment to a certain degree. Your relationship's going to be stronger on the other side of that thing. So now this is the best case scenario. You've been offended, you approach your brother or sister, you handle it with gentleness, you want to protect their reputation, you haven't told anybody else, you haven't slandered, you haven't gossiped, uh, you value that relationship, you want to fix it, even if you don't have value it like you ought to, out of obedience to Christ's commands, you go and deal with it, you go, your brother hears you out, and uh, you reconcile. Awesome, wonderful. That's the end of it. But, that's the best case scenario. Maybe you didn't handle it properly. Maybe the brother digs his heels in and says, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know. But somehow, somehow reconciliation doesn't happen. Then what happens? So, well, I tried. It was an ideal. I tried. The, the person is not repentant. They're not seeking forgiveness. Or I'm just going to reserve my right to not extend forgiveness. So we tried to reconcile. It didn't work out. It's just going to go on with life. Well, this is where this begins to stretch us a little bit. This is where Matthew 18 becomes difficult and very instructive. And this is where we begin to learn something very important about the church. What Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 is that if we follow this process and we go and we approach our brother in confidence, if reconciliation doesn't happen, Jesus demands that there be an escalation. You can't just say, oh, well, I tried. It was a grand idea. didn't work out. This is a tough reality. The remainder of our look at this passage, as I said, is going to stretch us. Some of us are going to be so stretched that we might arrive at a refusal to obey what Jesus says here. Or just a question is whole design for the church. So this morning, I hope that we can, as we get ready to look at this this week and the next couple of weeks, I hope we can all agree that as followers of Christ, we all should have a willingness to obey Jesus. I hope that as followers of Christ, we can all say that we have a willingness to obey Jesus even when what he says is difficult. I hope that together we can say that although we are the church, this is not our church. This is Christ's church that he's building. Even when what he asks us to do is far different from the way that we would naturally handle a situation or how we would design church, are we willing to submit to his design? Even if he shows us that his design for church is far different from the way we'd run it? I think we can all say, I hope so. I hope we can all agree that we want to obey Christ in these matters. After all, Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In John 15, 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will also abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? I mean, this is a measure, measure of discipleship, isn't it? So here we have, from the lips of Jesus, clear instructions for his church. And we who claim to be his church should have no desire except to obey Christ in these matters. So, approach your brother in confidence or sister, privately. Don't tell anybody else. Seek reconciliation. But, if that does not result in reconciliation... Jesus says an escalation must happen. Look in verse 15. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Wonderful. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a change in tone happening here. We find here, again, is an escalation. If the believer who has sinned has refused to ask forgiveness, refused to reconcile with his brother, that's unacceptable to Jesus. This is something he will not allow in his church. Sin which brought about this broken relationship must be dealt with, according to Christ. Just like he has told us that we must be right with others in order to seek the Father's forgiveness in prayer, just like he's told us that we must be right with brothers and sisters if we're to offer acceptable worship, here he says that we must be right with others if we are to maintain the culture which he requires in his church. So what does this escalation look like? I said this is an escalation. Look in verse 16. But, he who does, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, remember everything I said earlier about approaching your brother privately? How important that is? It is important. And this is what shows us that this escalation is so serious because now Jesus says, well, this is going to be a change in approach here. You've attempted to lovingly deal with the offense between the two of you alone. But the efforts at reconciliation have exposed something. It's like going to the beach and overturning rocks. I remember going to Pesh Island there with my daughter. And we kayaked over there. We got out of the kayaks. Um, one, one portion, and there was like a cushion that had washed up from a, from a boat. And I went over to the cushion, and I opened, or I just lifted up the cushion. And underneath the cushion were two snakes. <laughs> Should have just left well enough alone. They're just little guys, but the one snake coiled up and was kind of snapping at me. And, uh, yeah, I learned my lesson. <laughs> let sleeping, uh, let uh, sleeping snakes lie, and don't look underneath the... Uh, boat cushion. <laughs> That's a proverb somewhere. Uh, you, you go and approach your brother, and he doesn't reconcile. Your sister, they don't reconcile. There is no forgiveness. Uh, it, it exposes something. You've overturned something there. And what you see is an obstinate, rebellious heart. Now, Jesus says, you've used my method to go and seek reconciliation, and that method has done exactly what it was intended to do, either lead to reconciliation or expose a deeper heart issue that needs to be dealt with. And now a deeper heart issue has been exposed, and he says, so now we're going to change our approach. He says, you know, you've exposed, what, a lack of remorse? You've exposed a willingness to break and keep broken relationships in the church? You've exposed an overt rebellion against Jesus' commands to love one another? And so Jesus is so jealous for the purity of his church that he says, this can't remain, this can't be. There ought to be that supernatural love that we saw in John 13, and so this has to be dealt with. And so it's for this reason that he says an escalation must take place. Now that the offended believer has approached the fellow believer who's offended him, since the sinning brother has refused reconciliation, the offended brother must now let the situation be known. And just a couple words of wisdom here. Let it be known. You're going to have to tell one or two others. So pick those two people wisely. Choose somebody who's spiritually mature. Choose somebody who has a relationship with that individual. 
Nothing's worse than trying to approach somebody and expect vulnerability and sensitivity, and you approach that person confronting them, and you don't have any relationship with that person. Find somebody who's spiritually mature, has an existing relationship with this person, and then approach them, one or two others. Find an opportunity to sit down with that brother or sister. What's the purpose of bringing the two? Well, this is a very interesting aspect of Jesus' instructions here. He reveals to us again something about the church. We said earlier that a church is a group of baptized believers who regularly gather together and organize assemblies with a commitment to live out their discipleship in the context of loving relationships, continuing together in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, the practice of the ordinances, under the oversight of appointed leadership. What we're going to learn, though, is that the church possesses both a responsibility and an authority, and an authority to deal with the situation. Now look in verse 16 again. Think about the language here. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What is that language? What does that make you think of? It makes you think of a court, doesn't it? That's exactly what that language is. Jesus here is alluding to the principle of two or three witnesses which stretches as far back as Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And what Jesus is alluding to here is that same authority that existed there has now been delegated to the church. The church now are those administrators or mediators of his kingdom on earth. And so the church has an authority here that can come to bear upon this unrepentant brother. And he's using the language of a court. And you know what a court does is a court looks at witnesses, or hears witnesses, and it looks at evidence, and then what does it do? It pronounces a verdict. This is the language of authority and responsibility. In this sense, the church actually acts with authority as a sort of deliberative body that can pronounce a verdict. Not over criminal cases, but can pronounce a verdict over issues of what? Assessing a profession of faith. Determining whether or not somebody has genuinely been saved. I mean, we do that every time we baptize, don't we? The church has authority to determine what is sound doctrine. The church has authority to determine who has made a genuine profession of faith. And the church has authority to determine whether or not somebody's lifestyle has brought them to a place where it can no longer affirm that profession of faith. And that's what church discipline does. Matthew 18. So the witnesses don't come just to observe. Look in Matthew 18, verse 17. The witnesses are brought. They approach this brother. And then it says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, these two witnesses are coming, and they're also imploring. I mean, they're pleading with this brother. Listen, uh, they're hearing out the situation. They see that, okay, there has been a genuine offense. This brother or sister really does need to repent, really does need to reconcile. And so they are pleading with and imploring this brother, hey, listen, Show the evidence of your discipleship. Show the fact that you're sensitive to Christ. Show the fact that you want to obey His commands. Show the fact that you value His church. Show the fact that you want to exhibit that supernatural love that He says is distinctive of all of His disciples. So, so repent and reconcile. That's what these witnesses do. But they're there to be witnesses. Because if that brother or sister does not repent, does not seek reconciliation, 
those one or two others then are going to act as witnesses who then go and tell it to the church. Who's the church? Not the leadership. The church. Well, what now? What happens next? I said escalation. I said authority and responsibility. What happens next in this process of escalation that Jesus demands? Well, before we learn what happens next, we're going to have to take some time next week to go back to Jesus' first mention of the church in Matthew 16. We're going to have to go back to Matthew 16, and we're going to have to lay some groundwork, because what comes next is hard, it's going to stretch us. Some of you may have very, a lot of difficulty accepting it as God's design for the church. So we've got to go to Matthew 16 next week. We're going to see where the authority comes from that allows the church to do what comes next. So in conclusion, that's called a cliffhanger. In conclusion, Jesus will not tolerate unrepentant sin or irreconciled relationships in the church. Sin is an unwelcomed intruder in the church. A refusal to repent is a spiritual dysfunction in the church. These things have to be addressed, Jesus says. And we don't just half-heartedly address it and say, oh, that didn't work, I'm going to have to leave it. No, Jesus says, address it, and if reconciliation doesn't happen, it's going to have to escalate. It has to be dealt with. These things are always addressed with an ultimate desire of seeing a brother or sister come to repentance. Prove the genuineness of your salvation through repentance and reconciliation. The desire is that a relationship is healed goes on stronger than it was before. Why is this so serious? Because as we said, saw at the beginning, Jesus has staked his own credibility on the fact that his church shows such a supernatural love that it exhibits to the culture that they are his disciples. For this reason, when unrepentant sin surfaces, it has to be addressed. Further, not only must unrepentant sin be addressed, but as we're going to see next time, Jesus has given the church both the authority and responsibility to address it. But before we get to that, let me encourage you this morning Is there a relationship that's been broken? What's going to happen if we don't follow Jesus' commands here? Offense happens over here, and you say, okay, well, that relationship, you know, I I still love them. Love is always an action word, right? Jesus, I mean, the Bible is replete. You look at the one another's of Scripture, that's living out love. Say, I still love them. Okay, well, show us that love. But you break this relationship, and that's kind of grown cold, and you don't deal with that one. And then this one over here is broken. You don't deal with that one. And then that's just happening with those people over there. And then what happens to the church culture? It just becomes an informal gathering of people who become cold and rigid towards one another, completely destroying Jesus' standard in John 13. So is there somebody with whom you must reconcile this morning? Well, Jesus gives you clear commands. And so now listen. Consider this a wonderful opportunity, because all of you have heard, all of us have heard, that this is Jesus' design. So you should not at all feel awkward in approaching the brother or sister with whom the relationship has been broken. Because you should both right now understand, we understand what's happening here. This is what we ought to be doing as a church. We all heard it together. So this is a wonderful, so we're providing cover for you here, okay? So we all understand you could uh, approach one another and seek reconciliation out of love for one another. But let's make it right. That should be our desire as a church. So here's the questions in conclusion. Do we want to be a church which operates according to Jesus' design? Do we believe by faith that sin and broken relationships are destructive? Do we believe that sin spreads and infects if it's not dealt with? If so, then out of obedience to Jesus' commands and a desire to be the church that he is building, 
We're going to seek to reconcile with one another. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for clear design. Thank you for clear expression as to what Jesus expects in the church. And Lord, this is hard for us. We're sinners. There aren't many other areas in our lives where we have such vulnerable relationships apart from maybe our families. So, Lord, this is a high calling. This is calling us to be vulnerable. This is calling us to be sensitive, calling us to be humble. It's a matter of humility even to approach a brother or sister to tell them we've been offended. It's certainly a matter of humility to receive such a conversation. So, Lord, give us mercy, give us grace. Help us to be sensitive and gracious to one another. Help us to recognize that if somebody comes and approaches us, that that's an act of humility. Help us to recognize that undergirding all of our relationships here in the church is an underlying commitment to do church according to Jesus' design. There's an underlying love and commitment to one another as fellow church members that drives both of us to seek reconciliation. So help us to seek it according to Jesus' design. Help us to do it with the character of Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you keep us tender towards one another. Protect us as a church from growing cold. Protect us from being a cold organization. Help us instead to be the church that Jesus is building that shows the vibrant evidence of Christ's life in us. Lord, help us to fix relationships. Lord, those who are considering joining Calvary Baptist Church, I pray that you'd help them to understand your design and that this is our expectation in the church. And then, Lord, we pray that our love for one another would be so evident that the culture would have a hard time understanding it except uh, to recognize that this is a product of Jesus' transformative love in our lives. Then lastly, Lord, we just pray for any this morning who are not yet saved. For them, they need their sin forgiven by you. So, Lord, we pray for these that they'd recognize the state that they're in, spiritually dead, sinners, unable to save themselves, and in need of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Impress upon them their need for Jesus. And I pray that they'd come to you in faith, expressing through prayer the need for forgiveness Resting their trust in Jesus as their Savior. I pray that you would save souls. Lord, we thank you for this. Continue to build your church. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.